I love our church. I absolutely love our church. Well, uh, the title for my sermon this morning is How to Survive a Lion Attack. Now, you may, thank you, chuckle, uh, thank you uh, for that, but I, this message may not apply to everybody in here, but hey, when you are face-to-face with a lion, you're going to be thankful we had this talk, all right? Um, no, but my, my encounter with lions, or big cats that can be mistaken for lions, uh, is at the zoo, a little different than in the wild, maybe a feline compound with those, those cats prowling around in their cages. The L.A. Zoo, Santa Barbara Zoo, San Diego Zoo, Safari Park, those are some of the places that I've seen my big cats. At San Diego Zoo, the Safari Park, there's this Africa tram that takes you around. And if you've, if you've been there, you know that once you go on that tram and you make your way around in this big loop in this valley that's just been prepared to almost look like you're in the heart of Africa. You know how it feels like you're not in Southern California. You feel like you are in the center of Africa somewhere. You look out as you circle around this big loop, and you see into the middle, and there's all these groupings of giraffes together, eating the branches that were cut and then tied to the tree. Uh, and you see all of the hippos in, in, in their fashion doing what, what they do, being large. And you see the rhinos standing super intimidatingly looking at you. The gazelles, those water buffalo, those cheetah, cheetahs that are there, uh, all grouped in their kind. And this kind of uh, uh, atmosphere of looking at the wildlife that's in a zoo, it just doesn't seem as wild as you might think it is when it's not in a cage. You might think that it would be a little bit more wild if it wasn't born there, or maybe born in another zoo, and then brought over to this zoo, and then transplanted over there. Um, Some of these animals that are at the zoo are uh, extremely old, and so they're on their last leg, but they're still fun to look at through glass. But uh, when you're looking at the animals in the zoo, it's not quite the jungle safari that you could have if you were actually just driving right out into the wild where they live in their natural habitat and do all the things that they want to do, like attack you. Um, I think sometimes maybe we view the church as the zoo, and we look at the world as the wild In here, everything is safe, there's procedures and there are protections all around us so that we won't be harmed by the wild world out there. We have our $10 cotton candy, we have our souvenir shirts, we have our cameras as spectators, Uh, but there's no real danger here, so we think. I want to tell you this morning that the church, the church is in the wild. You are in the wild. Don't believe the lie that everything that could hurt you spiritually is on the other side of the glass and you have nothing to worry about. I'm here to tell you this morning, you do have something to worry about. You have something that could be hunting you every day of your life. 
In fact, on a regular basis, we are being hunted and attacked by our ancient foe. And he seeks to devour you. He seeks to devour you. And that's why we want to go to the scriptures in 1 Peter, where we see that life is no stroll through a park with fences. Now, this morning, we're going to go face to face with the king of the jungle. Might see here this bad boy going through the mountains. So jungle, mountains, wherever you want to call it. There, there are some big cats out there that are looking to, to, to pounce on their prey. So as you turn to the book of 1 Peter with me, I want to tell you a few things about the book. Peter writes to encourage believers who are chosen by God but rejected by the world. This is the book that we just finished last weekend in equipping hour with the youth. So if you look at the very beginning, kind of tailing back around to the beginning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and he names a few places that they've been scattered out and around to. So he calls them the elect exiles. Just those two words together capture so much truth. They're chosen by God, but rejected by this world. How were they exiles? How were they foreigners? Because when they accepted Christ, they were no longer welcome where they lived. They were chased out of home and family and separated and scattered. And so they've been dispersed. And so Peter writes this letter to those people who are dispersed, chosen by God, but rejected by the world. So he calls them the elect exiles, and he's trying to encourage them, give them hope. In fact, just even the beginning of the book, he makes it very clear that their rejection by the world is actually a sign or evidence of their election by God. If you have been rejected by the world, that's a good sign. That's a sign that you have been elected by God, chosen by him. And so right off the beginning of this book, this letter that was written, you see a message of hope. He calls it a living hope in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's pointing them to this living hope that they have. And you could break down the book this way. I've kind of looked at it in, in four parts. Uh, so you have, I think, uh, I believe on the next slide, you have hope in salvation in the first chapter and into the next, hope in submission and a number of different relationships that we have that we live in in this world, hope in suffering, and he just takes that topic to, to target for a full chapter and a little bit more, and then he finishes off the letter in chapter 5 talking about hope in the sheepfold, failing to come up with an S, talking about the church went with sheepfold, but it fits because in chapter 5, you see the exhortation to the elders to shepherd the flock of God in verse 2. And then you see in verse 4 of this chapter, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he's going to begin to bring a staccato effect of commands for the church and how they should interact, how they should live within the church. So in our text this morning, it fits in that section. In chapter 5, 
And we're going to look specifically at verses 8 to 11. So I want you to identify that in your Bible with me. And we're going to find three actions to take in order to survive the lion's attack. I was being silly earlier about an actual lion attack, but I want you to be able to look at this seriously. In our short four verses, we'll be moving from what is the power of Satan to the power of God. And I'm absolutely convinced this morning you'll be encouraged, you'll be built up in your faith to continue to stand firm against all of his attacks, and you'll know what to do when faced with him, your ancient foe. So let me read our text, and we'll get right into it. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it goes this way. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me give you the first action that you need to take in order to survive the lion's attack. And that is to be vigilant. Be vigilant. Satan hunts in the mind. Find this in verse 8. So identify verse 8 with me and I've given you the fill-ins up here on the screen so you can follow along. You know, it's interesting, if you were to go online and actually type in how to survive a lion attack, there's several hits that come up. They give a lot of very practical advice for people who might be in that situation. One of those things, the first thing, they actually, they actually give three, three tips, uh, three actions you need to take in order to survive a lion's attack. The first one I'll give you now, and I'll give you the second and third later on when we get to our second and third points. But the first thing that they mention for an actual lion attack, is to stand your ground. Stand your ground. That's what they say. They say, don't panic. They smell that, I guess. Uh, they say, don't run. That excites them. They like to run. It kind of gets them going. Their heart patting. We want to chase? Okay. And then it says, be prepared again. Or it says, sorry, it says, retreat slowly. However that looks. I don't know how slow you want to retreat from a face-to-face, stand down with the lion. Uh, and it says, retreat slowly. That says, and be prepared again, just in case if you're not totally in the clear. And it actually says to like, shout and make loud noises. When it says to not panic and don't run, it says to don't, don't play dead. They think that's easier target for them, so they just jump right on you. Uh, so th- stand your ground. Hey, who knows, it might work if you get in that situation. You'll be thanking me. You'll be like, oh, it was that one point from that sermon. Okay, I'm ready. Don't panic. Don't run. Retreat slowly and be prepared again. Ah! You know, whatever you got to do to scare it off, all right? So uh, we're looking at uh, verse 8 here. It says this very carefully with me. Look at these words. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
I want to focus in on the word watchful, but both of these commands right at the beginning of verse 8 go together, and they focus on the mind. So that's why I've given you Satan hunts in the mind. They have to do with a, a, a mental focus. To be vigilant is to be watchful, to be careful, to observe, alert, attentive, wide awake, and eyes wide open. I said, just like in class to our students, and they all laughed at me, and I don't know why. Uh, but to be vigilant, wide awake, eyes wide open. Uh, it, just think about it in life from your own experience. You, the times where you're most vigilant is when there's some kind of danger around, right? Think about that. You hear a gunshot that is just way too close. That's not like a firing range that you know where it's at. And, and what do you do? You perk up and you, you scan everywhere as soon as you can. You're like, whoa, what's going on? Where is this going? Your eyes just blink, come right open. All right, maybe, maybe you're coming in in your car up on a, on a car accident. And there's been some traumatic accident. Every one of you are rubberneckers. I know it. You look and you go, oh, I want to see what happened. Uh, and, and you get, become alert. You're like, oh, no. What happened? There's some danger here. What happened? Or maybe it's a nat natural disaster. You think of a situation where uh, you're, you're encountering some nat natural disaster. It's hard to sleep through. You're awake. You're alert because there's some danger. And so when you even just read what he's saying here, to be sober-minded, be watchful, you will be watchful if you know what he says next, because there is danger. There's danger around you. So you should perk up. You think of maybe what's going on in the wild. When that lion roars, he makes himself known, he strikes fear into all the other animals that are out there around him, they perk up. They almost give him that due respect, knowing he's the boss here. He could take me down here. You see all kinds of animals that, that go on the alert when the lion is near, because they are sneaky and they are powerful. The gazelle stands still, knowing if they stand still, they blend in to what's right behind them. God designed their fur and their and their. Uh, they're coloring so they can hide carefully. You've got water buffalo watching the brush, knowing this lion could be right behind me and I don't even notice it. You've got hippos wiggling their tiny ears, you know, trying to make sure that they can hear anything to get in there to prepare them. My favorite, and I don't know if prairie dogs are really around where lions are, but those things are just the most alert. You ever see prairie dogs? They all come up on, on the top of their little hill, their mound, and they all stand up. You know, they're like super erect. Like they get as high as they can, which is like this high, you know, and they're just all like, and they see something move, what happens? You know, they all look over there. You know, they're, they're just on the alert. Uh, good job, prairie dog. You know, they, they can see. They, they, they know. Okay, we could, get, we could get gobbled up any moment here, and they go alert. And you see that happen in nature. You see that happen. It's instinctive to them. What we see here is that P Peter is going to hit them with some commands so that they would be, and we would be alert, watchful. We need to live by this 
as sheep in the sheepfold that live in the wild in the world. So these two imperatives, be sober-minded and be watchful, they, they come together to be sober-minded has already been mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13, when he talked about girding up the loins of your mind, being ready for action. Anything could happen. Are you ready or are you sitting back? Chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Are you ready for action? The Lord's return is any moment he could come back and you don't want to be caught sluggish, sleepy in your spirit. You see, when he says to be watchful, this is to be alert since the devil is on the prowl. His hunting ground is not out there, out in the world, and, and oh, we're, we're safe in here. That's what I want to warn you about. I want you to know that he would love to gobble any one of you up, and there are a number of ways that he, can, he could do that. We are vulnerable to his attack if we are not sober-minded, if we are not watchful, if we are not vigilant. Lakeside, the devil seeks to destroy your faith. That's what he does when he bites. He wants to wreak havoc of your life. He wants to bring persecution in. He wants you to question God's goodness when hard times come. That's how he sneaks up on you. That's how he bites. It's through persecution, through suffering. And for you to wonder for a moment, is God really there? Does God really care? Is God really good? Then, then why? Why would this happen? Then why would that happen? It's in those moments that his jaws are just unlocking and getting so big right over your head, ready to chomp. And he's got you poised and ready for that bite. He tricked Eve. He tested Job. He tempted Jesus. He toyed with Judas, and he tormented Paul. And he's not stopped prowling around for thousands of years. This is not his first safari. He, he knows how to hunt. He watches prey. Every generation that goes by, he's not a stupid cat. He sees how we act. He sees how we doubt. He sees how we fail. And he knows when to sneak in. He knows when to send his demons. He knows where to attack us and when to attack us. He knows when we are least vigilant. He knows when we are least watchful. That's why we can call him our ancient foe. Our ancient foe. Jesus told Peter something interesting in Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. And I want you to think about this in the sense that who's the guy who wrote this book that we're reading right now? It's Peter. So earlier on in his life, before he wrote this short letter, he has an experience. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says this to him, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, when he says this, this is right before Peter denies Jesus three times. He has an opportunity to stand strong in his faith, but three times, not once, not twice, but three times in a row, he backs out and he disassociates himself with Christ, making himself vulnerable to attack. And his faith fails. His faith fails. But look at the wording carefully. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Who is Satan making the demand to that he could have Peter? He's demanding God to give him Peter. Satan cannot act unless if God permits. Satan cannot move unless God allows. He has to get permission. And when Jesus says in response, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, you know that after those three times of denying, Jesus isn't done with them. Because that's not where it ends. Satan doesn't get the last word with Peter. And that's what happens in John 21. John 21, Jesus, after he is left by all of his disciples and Peter openly denies him three times, Jesus goes, suffers, and dies on the cross for all to see three days later, rises again in victory and power, and he comes back to find Peter. He comes back to find Peter, and you just, you just wonder what Peter has been feeling and thinking, what thoughts have been going through his mind, going, man, I, I, I have put my foot in my mouth so many times saying that I would never stand down, and I just did three times when it mattered most. I'm such a failure. How could he ever take me back? I mean, he could have had some of these thoughts. He would never take me back. I was the closest to him, and now I feel the furthest from him. But what does Jesus do? He comes to him in a spirit of gentleness, and he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know that I do. And so he says, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. What he's doing there is restoring Peter. He's bringing him back so that what he could say earlier, like he said earlier, he prayed that his faith may not fail. Jesus is not done yet with you if you have failed. If you have failed and you feel like, oh, he could never take me back, Jesus in a similar fashion comes to you. And brings you back onto the landscape with this graciousness that he shows to Peter. And it's really beautiful what he says to Peter. He, you would think, oh, well, he might bring Peter back, but then just tell him to, like, you know, ride the boat around or, or you know, catch fish for the other serious disciples or something. No, he says, he says, go and love the sheep. Go tend to them. Go feed them. Go help them out. And love like a pastor would. And so you see Peter go and do exactly that, all through the book of Acts, and then you see this letter of 1 Peter. So now look at verse 8 again, considering what Peter has gone through. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
in the back of his mind, he's probably thinking, I failed at that. I was, I was sluggish. I wasn't ready. I wasn't strong enough in my faith in that moment. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I bet you he remembered when Jesus told him, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you. He wanted to sift you like wheat, to grind you down to nothing. And I bet he remembers that. You know, as I was preparing this message, somehow a a video came up of, of a man who was attacked and mauled by a bear. And uh, it was at night, he was going out to the dumpster or something, and, and, uh, and he had an encounter with a bear. He didn't see it coming, he, it, it was dark, and, and he was mauled, but he was spared. He was alive afterwards. Well, the pictures they have of him in the video of him, like that next day or that next week, when they were interviewing him, he had red marks from in his hair up here, all the way across his face, down to the, his jawline on the other side. There's about four of them, just right across his face. It was glistening with ointment because they didn't want to get infected, and, and they were treating those wounds. But he was talking just like, oh, yeah, so then this happened. And happened. You know, I'm just looking at this face, just going, like, whoa, that was a close call. And he's here standing, living to tell about it. You know, it almost kind of brought that picture into my mind of, like, spiritually what Peter has gone through. It was like, he... He so would have been crushed to a pulp if Jesus didn't pray for his faith that it would not fail. It could have been a fatal blow unless if God was stronger and upheld him and kept his faith strong. And so when he writes this letter, I almost picture him thinking in his mind, I have that scar across my face. I know what it's like to be in a close encounter and to almost die because I was not watchful. And so he appeals in verse 8, be sober-minded, Think with clarity. Don't get distracted. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. So here he has turned again, just like Jesus said, and now he's tending to the sheep. He's tending to us as well. And I bet another thing that Peter remembered was when Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Do you remember where those words were spoken? It's in Mark 14, 38, when he's taking them into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus knows that the biggest test and suffering is coming up hours away, moments away. And so what does he do? He goes to pray at night. He takes the disciples into the garden and he brings them with him. It was a place where he would often pray. And he told them to to stay there, but to stay alert and to pray. He took Peter, James, and John a little further, and he told them to stay there and to stay alert and to pray. And then he went in further and prayed to be alone with the Lord. And when he came back, what did he find? Were they praying? Were they steadfast in prayer? Watchful? Vigilant? No, they were sleeping. Sleeping. And Jesus knows that that this time of testing is coming upon them. And so he, he stays vigilant, he stays watchful, and he shares these words with them that I hope would just ring in our ears forever when he says, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Now getting just very practical, 
think about moments in your day-to-day life where you are least vigilant. Think about when you are least watchful over your soul, over your thoughts, over the things that you take in, whether it's things that you look at or things that you eat or things that you do. It could be late at night. It could be the times where you feel like no one is really around. It could be right after a fight. If you've had a fight in the home and all you can care about is just getting vengeance, there's this vicious cycle where you are not watchful. You are giving into temptation time and time again. Maybe it's after you've failed at something. Right after you get in your car and you are on the road in traffic. Maybe it's after you've stared at a screen for four hours, wherever it is. When? When are you most susceptible to attack? When are you least watchful over what's going on in your heart and your mind and your life? Know that Satan is no dummy. He knows those times better than you. He's waiting for you to have the next one. That's how he hunts. He's waiting for your mind to fall asleep. He's waiting for your soul to go dead to God. He's waiting for your spirit to turn off from God and to turn on to something else. And that's when he moves in. What ways can you watch and pray against the temptations in your life? How can you grow in that, being watchful and prayerful against the temptations in your life? Take great pains in these things. What ways can you be more mentally sharp so as not to fall into temptation? You sharpen your mind with the scriptures. You renew your mind regularly so you don't become sluggish in your spirit. Said shortly, pray or be prey. Pray or be prey. Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. And let me tell you, he's looking for one. And he knows them. Let me give you the second way to stand on guard against Satan in his attack. It's be resistant. Be resistant. Satan attacks the weak. Look at verse 9. It says, resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, as I said earlier, real-life encounter, you and lion, the second method of surviving an actual lion attack is to fight the attack. Yeah, so if the first one didn't work, and he's coming at you still, you weren't able to slowly enough back away, uh, then fight the attack. Uh, You have to be prepared if standing on ground doesn't work. So, remain standing... Don't fall to the ground. They look at that as a sign of weakness. Uh, Aim for the face, as they say. Uh, Seek immediate help. And I love this one too. Seek psychological help after. So I just thought that was interesting that they felt that was important enough to put that in there. Uh, That you survived it, and I got to get some counseling. Ah, That is 
That was rough. Let me tell you about it. So fight the attack. Aim for the face. You know, just punch the lion right in the eye. You know, um, and uh, don't let him get here. He likes this spot. That's what I hear too. So fight the attack. Now, looking at verse 9, we actually have your second method of surviving a lion attack, speaking of Satan. It says, resist him, firm in your faith. Be resistant. Satan attacks the weak. If you read anything about how lions uh, attack, a lot of times they're looking for the weak ones. They know that they can't take down the big ones very easily. So they look for the little ones that are separated from mom, and they look for the hurt ones that are easier to take down. I watched a number of these videos thinking which one would be acceptable to play for our youth. I determined that none of them were. Uh, But I was watching one where these two lions were just coming up, you know, just like cats do, super low to the ground. I don't know how they walk that way, but they, you know, super low to the ground, and they're just kind of coming up, and they stop, and they come, and just right in the brush. The brush is perfect height for them to kind of sneak in, and there was this, like, calf or buffalo-looking thing, and, you know, dark, and there was a little baby calf skipping around, just had been born. And which one do they want to go for? The little one. It gets, it gets separated from mom, and you see them kind of coming in like, and I mean, their eyes are just like, you can see their eyes almost from the person who's filming it from their car. And you're just like, oh, this is going to go badly. Uh, and and so, so Satan loves to attack the weak. To find where there is doubt. Look at verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. You've, you've heard the hurting person, or maybe you've been the hurting person who has said before, why? God, why would you do this to me? Why would you take this from me? Why did you change this part of my life? Why do I have to be here now, not there? God, why? Where are you? A lot of these cries are what we feel inside when we go through suffering, we go through persecution, we go through loss, and our faith can really be rattled, and it can be revealed for what it really is. Maybe someone says of someone else who has suffered loss, where is your God? Where is He now? Surely He doesn't exist, because if He did then he wouldn't have let this happen to you. And they try to come at it very logically and just say, I I don't see any evidence that your God exists or if he does exist that he even cares because look at what's going on in your life. And maybe those things are being said. These are the cries of the wounded. These are the cries of those that Satan loves to devour. Verse 9 teaches us that to fall, pray to the devil... All one has to do is doubt God. Doubt God, and you become placed right in the cat's bowl. Easy food. Handed over to him if there is doubt and thoughts of doubt and seeds of doubt being sown in your life, in your heart. But the one who has faith stands firm. 
It says, resist him firm in your faith. So resist him is the command, and the way to carry out that command of resisting the lion when it attacks is to stand firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. James 4.7 says it this way, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I just think that's such an interesting but yet relevant verse. Think about that. James 4.7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you kind of think about this and you go, well, how can you, how can you actually resist Satan and how can you make him actually flee from you? How is it that we can call Satan, our ancient foe, a scaredy cat when he runs from us? Do you see the power in this? You actually have power to be able to resist Satan and he will flee from you. Let me tell you how this works. When you stand firm in your faith, who do you stand next to? Pick one person. Who is that one that you stand next to? When you are firmest in your faith, who are you with? You are with Christ. You are with Christ. And when you stand firm in your faith, you stand close to him, you you hear his words, you hold his words with belief. You're not chucking them out and discarding them because they don't make sense to you in the moment, but you're holding on to them. And so when Satan comes to to bite and devour you and he sees a bigger cat and you resist him standing firm in your faith close to Christ, he runs. Satan is terrified of Christ. Our ancient foe knows no other foe like Christ to him. So I would tell you, I would commend you, how do I stand firm in my faith? Find Christ, come to Christ, hold on to his words, believe what he has said to you about eternal life, turn from your sin and don't hold sin. It's not precious like Jesus. Satan wants you to think that those things that you hold on to are precious and that they're going to give you something good. But they don't. So resist him. Resist him. Here's a quote by a guy named Joel Beakey. He says this, When Satan comes to tempt us, to bring us into the bondage of sin, let's say to him, Devil, you have come to the wrong address. If you want me, you must first go to my head who is in heaven, for I am in him. Satan, you are no longer landlord of my life. I no longer have to pay you rent. As for me, I am resolved to live the life I was meant to live as a saved sinner made alive in Christ. It's a good response. It's a response of faith. It's a response that has to do with being close to Christ. Well, he says, resist him, the command, how to do that, firm in your faith. And then he says, here's a motivation, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This gives some encouragement. And you're like, oh, 
I, I want to resist him. I want to stand firm in my faith. Well, now Peter uses this as a motivation and an encouragement to them. He says, you're not the only ones who are being persecuted. You're not the only ones who are being hunted. You're not the only ones who are suffering for your faith in Christ. There are many others like you. There are many others. Your brotherhood, he says, referring to the true church, those who are in the family of God. And he says, your brotherhood throughout the world. It's like you get like this big picture for a moment about how we're all together. Yes, in the wild but standing with Christ. And when you stand with Christ, the world hates you. They don't love you. When you stand with Christ and when you stand for Christ, you feel resistance in this world. And that resistance is backed by Satan. You think of it this way, soldiers that are going into war and you picture them in in the trenches as trench warfare was like. And you, and you picture one man who's trying to get the courage to be able to get up out of that bunker and to run into fire and to take down the enemy. But he doesn't feel motivation until he looks left and right and he sees a whole army ready to jump out of the bunker and go and defeat the enemy. This is what he's saying here. He's trying to motivate them. If you ever played on a team, you look at your teammates and you wonder why you're close to them because you're doing battle together. You work hard together. You hold each other accountable. The pain that you feel, you know they feel. And so you press on. You don't feel like, oh, am I the only one that this is happening to? And start to just shrink back and wonder as if something's gone wrong. No, you're not the only one that is experiencing the same kinds of suffering. There is an army with you. Well, the third point I want to give you is be expectant. This is a good part. Satan loses in the end. Satan loses in the end. And as I promised, here's the third method of surviving an actual lion attack. It says avoiding an attack. That should come at no surprise. Avoid the attack in the first place. Don't go around lions when they're being aggressive. Uh, Lion cubs... Uh, mating, you know, all this. You know, keep a night watch, it says, at night. It says if you're in a tent, keep the zipper up. They love to come right in. If you leave it open because it's a hot night, you make easy food for them. So avoid the attack. Well, this point is about your hope, verses 10 and 11. These could be some of the most encouraging verses, I think, in this whole letter. So let's capture this with this final point. When it says be, when I say be expectant, I'm speaking of your hope. You have an expectation of something that is future and that is coming. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, and you go, there he is, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You look at verses 8 and 9, and then you look at verses 10 and 11, and you go, where did the cat go? Where did the lion go? He's gone. 
He's chased away. And here is God calling you home in Christ, promising restoration and to confirm you and strengthen you when you are weak and establish you when you have fallen. This point is about the hope that he introed the book with, chapter 1, verse 3, and that he talked about how we need to give a defense for whenever we're asked of this hope that we have in us. And this hope fixes your gaze on future glory rather than that present suffering. Not to dwell on that suffering that you are encountering in the moment, but to look on to glory. Look at the contrast in the way that he uses these words. It's very intentional. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, it says, so the suffering is for a short while. It says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So there's little while and there's eternal glory. Can you handle a little bit of pain to get the remedy for what is ailing you? It's hard to convince a child to take a shot It's hard to convince someone that this is going to hurt for a moment, but you need this, and it's going to be good for you in the end. And so when you look at what he's saying here, he's helping you endure whatever pain it is you're going through by pointing you and keeping your eyes focused and fixed on eternal glory. This is living with an eternal perspective. When he says, after you've suffered for a little while, He's not saying that those people who are causing your suffering are going to kind of lose interest, are going to kind of go move on to somebody else, are going to, you know, just do it until they get a last laugh, but then they're going to pat you on the back and just say, just kidding. No, he's saying this is going to go all the way until the end of your life. Your life of suffering, whether it's 10 years, 60 years as a believer, compared to eternity, is a little while. And the God of all grace. That phrase ministers to me just thinking about how many different ones of you out here have different weaknesses, failures, where you have not felt established. Your faith is weak in in certain relationships or in certain places, certain times. And here he has all grace. It matches every need that you have. Not one of you has this unique problem that God's grace can't remedy and and rescue and restore. There's a phrase that I want you to capture and not miss this morning. He says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. In Christ are two of the sweetest words that you could read or that you could hear. I want you to savor them this morning. Let me tell you what this means. If you are in Christ, it means you are being called home to glory. It doesn't mean that this is your home. It means that you're being called home to glory. To be in Christ is to not be in your sin, to be in Adam, to be in a fallen state. But it's to be transferred out of who you once were into Christ. So when you think of being In Christ, you think of how you came from this place of fallenness and deserving of a penalty for your life, and you look at what Christ has done, and and he went there, and he took the penalty, and and he went here, and he brought eternal life through the resurrection. 
And he says, follow me out of sin into life. So if you transfer your faith in Christ, what happens is you become in him. So God looks at you and he sees Christ. He sees perfection. Not your perfection. Christ's perfection. That is good news. Aren't we imperfect in so many different ways? We're perfectly imperfect. We have so many ways we have fallen. But to be in Christ, it washes all those away. It says they've all been paid for, been set free from all of them. We owe no rent to our sin, to Satan. But it's put behind us. And you are not a perfect person, but you have transferred your trust into Christ, who is the alone perfect person. And he leads you on to glory. So, are you in Christ? This is a position. This is a position of your life. If you're not in him, then you are just in you. You won't fare well that way. If you're in Christ, you have every hope. You have every strength and every confidence that you can cause the cat to run and go to glory where he has called you. This has to be one of the most encouraging verses. And I just, again, hear Peter's testimony in this when he says that the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you. That's what he experienced in some way. He is restoring Peter, bringing him back to a place of not being known as a failure, but being known as someone who's being restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. So he's beginning that work in us, and he's going to be faithful to complete that work that he has started in us. And look at verse 11. When you think about God's great grace of what he's done, what could you, what could you possibly think to do next other than to praise him? This is where praise comes. This is where worship comes, is when you've meditated on who you are in Christ and you have every hope in this lost and dying world and you just say, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says this to a people who have been dispersed, beaten, martyred, persecuted, who are suffering in this world. This world hates them because they stand for Christ. And they're wondering, in this world, whose dominion is this? Does Satan have power over me, or does God have power over him? And so he just looks up to the ultimate dominion. That's why he's used the word dominion. It's talking about his power to him be the power or dominion forever and ever. I want to close by reading or showing you a, a painting, but I want to share with you a story about this painting. So I don't know if you've seen this one before. Uh, there's a story that's told of a, a chess champion who was fascinated by this European painting of two chess players. I don't know if it's true or not, but this is how the story goes. One is depicted as Satan. Yeah, dude. All right, and he's looking smugly at his opponent. His opponent. The other player is a young man. 
He's seriously considering his next move, recognizing that he was only one move away from losing the game. The title of the painting was Checkmate. And the message was clear. The devil was hoping to capture the young man's soul forever in the next move. After studying the chessboard for hours, the chess champion realized that the young man still had a way of escape. He could move to checkmate the devil if he played it just right. I wish you could hear me, the chess champion cried aloud to the young man in the painting. Though Satan has tricked you, you need not be checkmated. You can checkmate him. Your life can be transformed. You, not the devil, can have the last move. It was a powerful illustration thinking about who has the last move, who has the last word over your life. It is not Satan. It is the Lord. Maybe you've been up against the ropes in your life recently and you feel like the opponent is just going to town on you. Maybe you've been slashed across the face with the abuses of life from the evil one. Maybe you've retreated into dark places to hide because of shame of choices that you've made, like Peter even. Maybe you feel no way of escape in your next move. But hear me. Your next move can be in the right direction. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. If you're unsaved, come to Christ. If you're saved, come to Christ. Go to him. Stand firm in who he is and what he has said of your life. He knows the move to make. He knows the way to best Satan. He is your champion. He's the one who's victorious. End with a quote. It says, Be of good courage, dear child of God. Christ's seed will not perish, despite all the efforts of Satan. Christ, your victor, cannot fail. Satan has his limitations. Though extremely powerful, he and his demon host are not omnipotent, omniscient, nor omnipresent. Satan simply cannot be everywhere at once. He is a fallen angel, not a fallen God. Mighty, but not almighty. Let's pray to the Almighty. God, I want to pray very earnestly this morning that you would protect our church. I know that there are evil people who hate people in this church. They seem to be ministers of Satan. As some call them the devil's dogs doing his work. But God, we know that your church around the world experiences this kind of hatred, this kind of rejection. And Lord, it causes us to just come closer to you. So I pray earnestly for each of these ones who is here this morning, Lord, that we would not feel defeated by our ancient foe, 
but they would, we would feel emboldened by you. You are the Lion of Judah. You are the true King of kings. There is no one who is higher than you, no name that can be named that is stronger, and your power lasts for an eternity, forever. So God, please help us to find hope in you, to not be despairing in our sin and our failure, but to come and find restoration in Christ who calls us back from several bad moves before. Lord, thank you for your grace. And thank you for giving us the hope of glory in Christ. Amen.